0: I'm Jewel Banville and this is Last Best Stories. And this is Brian Wells, a guy who's recently made remembering a plane crash on a mountain his life's mission.
1: One one guy called me one time and he he said, my dad was on that plane when it crashed. He said I was four months old. And he said, when are you gonna do this dedication? I said, when do you want us to? And he said, July 23rd, the anniversary of the crash. I said, well, that's when we're doing it.
0: In advance of this hard-fought memorial ceremony, we're going to tell you, as best we can, what happened after an Air Force B-47 bomber on a Cold War training mission slammed into Emigrant Peak. The story is a collaboration between this podcast and the Bozeman Daily Chronicle. You can also find it, plus great photos and a written feature, at BozemanDailyChronicle.com.
2: What year was that, 62?
3: Yeah, 62.
2: 62, there was a plane went down on Immigrant Peak. Uh,
3: Four people were killed. I'm Michael Wright, and I work as a reporter for the Bozeman Chronicle. I'm talking to Jim Larkin about that day in July, 54 years ago, when he and his future wife were in his car about to go for a late night swim. For some reason, he decided to stop.
2: I don't know what made me stop. I don't, to this day, I've never figured out the why. And I told Leela, my wife, I said, she said, what are you doing? I said, stopping. She said, what for? I said, I don't know, but I gotta go back to town.
3: Larkin worked for the Forest Service for 33 years. The wiry 76-year-old still runs cows, grows hay, and puffs cigarettes. He was 22 when he turned the car around and went back to the Forest Service's Livingston office and checked in with his boss. And uh, by this time, it was probably
2: 11 at night, and he was sitting at the desk, and he said, am I glad to see you. And I said, what's going on? He said, there had been a plane go down.
3: Earlier that night, an Air Force B-47 bomber on a Cold War training mission slammed into the southwestern slope of Emigrant Peak. That's about 15 miles north of Yellowstone National Park. And it started a fire. Radio transcripts from the night show that another plane in the area saw the explosion and reported it to the dispatcher. After that, the dispatcher repeated the call sign. FIDO-15, FIDO-15. FIDO-15 didn't respond. The plane took off from Dias Air Force Base in Texas that night around 6.30. There was Captain Bill Falconer, a one-time Price's Right contestant from Kansas, who thought he'd start farming when he left the Air Force. There was Lieutenant Fred Hicksonbaugh, a West Virginian who used to prank his sisters and loved baseball. There was Lieutenant David Sutton from Oklahoma, who was exactly one month into his second year as a full pilot. And Lieutenant Lloyd Sawyers, a Texan who'd save the box dinner he got on missions and give it to his two young daughters.
4: Rations and little white boxes, and it's funny that I remember that, that he would always bring those back to Sheila and I.
3: Sharon Wilcoxon, who still lives in Texas, was only four years old when her dad died. These were all young guys, none of them older than 30. All of them married. Their lives ended on a mountain in southern Montana, more than a thousand miles from their base in Texas. No one really knows what happened up there. Federal documents obtained through a public records request say the cause of the crash is undetermined, and a lot of the investigation report is blacked out. I sent in an appeal for the redacted pages, but nothing came back. The documents do say an error by some member of the crew is the most probable cause. They were flying too low late at night. It was a simulated bombing run through Montana, and one guy needed instruction in midair refueling. They rounded the town of Dillon and headed across the Paradise Valley. Maps of the flight route indicate they were supposed to start heading northeast, near where they went down. The Livingston Enterprise reported the fire grew to about 40 acres. For a few days after the crash, Larkin ran gas and tools to the fire crews. On one trip down, he carried a finger and a wedding ring. After the fire job was over, he never went back up there.
2: After you've picked up parts of a human being and done a few things like that, I just really didn't want to go
3: back to that site. Larkin and others who worked on the fire after the crash wouldn't forget it. Jim Woodhull fought fires for the Forest Service for 18 summers. The day of the plane crash, he knocked off to go fly fishing. I come in that evening, I come back from, we'd
5: gone to Yellowstone Park fishing, and there's a little black haze hanging over Immigrant Peak. So I got home and I called the the ranger office and I said, have we got a fire? And his response was, where the heck have you been?
3: Like Larkin, Woodhull ended up running supplies to and from the fire for a few days. But his involvement with the crash didn't end there. A year later... Another
5: ranger and I, who a fellow that had been on the fire, were told we had a little job to do on the weekend, which is, was my normal work day, to escort these ladies to the crash site.
3: They stayed in town and hooked up with the Forest Service for the hard, long hike.
5: And we tried... I tried to talk the ladies out of going. I mean, uh, you know, that, I was not, you know, that's an emotional thing.
3: But they wanted to do it. Myrna Fair, married to Bill Falconer, told me in an untaped interview that only one of them made it to the crash site. She brought back small pieces of the plane for the other widows. Myrna keeps hers in a coin purse. But as to the rest of the wreckage, most of it's still up there.
5: Once the sensitive stuff was recovered why, the rest of it was just left. But. Our job was to.
3: Re- I talked to Jim Woodhull about it all in his kitchen in a quiet neighborhood in Livingston. A few weeks later, he died of a heart attack. It was an honor to talk to him before that. The crash mattered to him in a big way. A former Navy flight engineer, he told me he related to the men who died in the wreck. Like Larkin, after he took the widows up that way, he never went back. But I needed to. I needed to see this place, and I knew the guy to call.
1: I remember people talking about it when I was a kid, you know, so I hiked up to it in 1969 when I was 15 years old, and I found it.
3: Brian Wells, who lives at the base of Emigrant Peak in Old Chico, never forgot. In the past year, he's made commemorating this crash his life's mission. After finding the wreckage as a teenager, he's been up there at least three times in the past year, one of them with me. Well, not just me.
0: I was there too, recording and interviewing Brian.
3: Right, Jewel Banville, who produces the podcast Last Best Stories, joined the Trek, as did our photographer from the Bozeman Chronicle, Adrian Sanchez Gonzalez, and my girlfriend, Rachel Babbitt, who happened to have the day off and wanted to see all this too. Oh, and Hobbs, Brian's dog.
0: So Brian, for the people who uh, are just listening and they're not on this, tell us where we are and what we're doing right now.
1: Well, we are on Gold Price Creek A tributary of Six Mile Creek in Paradise Valley in Park County. And we just left the trailhead. We're going to hike about three, maybe three and a half miles and gain 3,000 feet to the plane wreck. I'm already out of breath. (coughs) Me too. Can we stop and have a smoke?
0: Sure. (laughs) A lot of people in this valley have heard about this crash, but they don't know the details. Oh yeah, they'll say, that plane crash, when was that again? Brian didn't do much with what he knew about it until he got a call from a retired lieutenant colonel from the Air Force in Great Falls. We talked about it in the truck on the way up here.
1: And he had called the sheriff's department in Livingston wanting information on that jet bomber crash. And the, the deputy he talked to just gave him my phone number. So I got on, we got on Google Maps together over the phone.
0: They tried to see it with Google Earth. See, the crash wasn't at the top, which is at nearly 11,000 feet, but it's about 2,500 feet below that. They did have the right coordinates, but they couldn't see the wreckage on their computers.
1: But anyway... I thought about it all night. And the next day I texted him and I said, I'm going, I'm going to hike up there.
0: Brian took with him a couple from Texas who were staying at one of the cabins he rents out near his house in Old Chico. He's got a butcher shop there too and a pretty good chunk of land. It took two tries to find it again, the second with his grandkids. But now Brian Wells, who's 61, knows the way, which was good for us because there's almost no way any of us could imagine finding it. See, there's no real trail to this place. We start early, right around sunrise, walking up muddy drainages and draws and listening to Brian's stories along the way.
1: At the, head, at the top of this draw up here, it opens up in, into a, a beautiful meadow. And 42 years ago, two weeks before I got married, that's where we went on our second date. We dated three weeks and got married the fourth. <laughs> you liked her. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I did. I, I mean, the first time I saw her was junior high school, and I, 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 I couldn't even look at her. So She was so beautiful, I was intimidated. I never talked to her all through school. Junior high, high school, my friends would talk to her, and I'd look at my feet. And it was a- after high school, I asked her for a date and she said no. And she called me back a couple hours later and said yes, and that's all she wrote.
0: Brian's a tall guy, fit enough to do this climb. Everybody knows him by his long, bushy gray beard. He's lived in or near this valley since he was nine. On our hike, he brings us walking sticks, some bear spray, enough for each of us to carry a can, and his rifle. It's
1: bear <laughs> spray backup.
0: We climbed to a ridge, then we side hill around a bowl and crest another ridge the views are gigantic and gorgeous we start west going downhill for the first time all day and the wind picks up
1: right there is called bowl mountain the one right behind you
0: so where are we now in our in our journey sir we're I move a little faster to catch up to Brian as he points to a little silver square in the grass.
1: We're going to see a lot more.
0: And he's right. As we go farther, the pieces multiply.
1: Boy, it's all over. So much of it. 54 years ago, yeah.
0: There are rusted out cans, panels with bolts still stuck in them, mangled engine pieces. There are a bunch of trees that have been charred, some of them by the crash, others by a fire that happened up here later.
1: Uh, there's a tree over here somewhere with a, with a piece of the plane stuck in it. We should find, find it, huh?
0: Brian tells us every time he comes up here, it feels incomplete. I mean, what if you stumbled up here and found all this aluminum scattered on a mountain? Would you understand what had happened and who had been lost? At the very least, he thought there should be a plaque up here, an acknowledgment in this place that four people died
1: put the plaque right in here somewhere. Yeah, and it, it would be so nice for the, for the families, you know, that, that their uh, loved ones are remembered and, and honored by their government, you know.
0: It's been a year now since Brian began his quest to get a proper memorial for what happened in 62 on Emigrant Peak. He did start with that plaque idea, which we talked about in his truck.
1: So I went and talked to the Forest Service, and they don't allow it. They don't allow that, so I was pretty disappointed. Very disappointed.
3: You know, he told me that too in another conversation, and I wondered why. Why wouldn't a small memorial work up here, in this place where there's so much history, where four men died on an official mission with the U.S. government? A spokeswoman for the agency, Marna Daly, told me it doesn't matter what the merit of the memorial might be, or the size, because it's public land.
0: If you put a memorial there, the, the, the physical property that is occupied by the memorial um, is no longer available for public use. Uh, so then you set up the, the perception that there's title to that piece of property.
3: Plus, she's worried about setting a precedent.
0: A little bit. We receive requests to, for folks to put memorials um, on public property uh, regularly, and unfortunately, we just cannot accommodate that.
3: That was pretty much the reasoning Brian got when he went and talked to the local district ranger when all this started. Although that person did offer other options.
1: And we, you know, we visited for a while about it in in the office down there in Livingston. And to his credit, he said, well, why don't we talk about an interpretive historical site at a trailhead, or a roadside. And I said, that'd be great. And then he said, but we'll have to get letters from a group requesting it. And he said, it'll take several years.
3: The three widows still alive are in their 70s and 80s. Brian is in his 60s. If he was gonna make this happen, he didn't think he had several years to do it.
1: So I I went home and I got to thinking about it. I mean, our cemetery is is at the base of the mountain. So I called the cemetery board. We met the next day, everyone said yes. And the next day after that, we all met at the cemetery and picked out a site. That's, that's the kind of bureaucracy I like.
3: So now Brian had a spot, the Chico Cemetery, and he got to work. One of the first things he did was call his cousin's husband, Keith Joyner. Keith is an amateur genealogist and a veteran. He'd done a lot to figure out all the twists and turns in Brian's family. Brian figured if anybody could find the families of the airmen, it'd be Keith.
6: You know, Google's a wonderful thing. Um, I just had the list of names and I started Googling those names.
3: Jewel caught up with him at his house in Hot Springs, about 300 miles northwest of where Brian lives.
6: I got got stuff at the table that you might be interested in seeing. Oh, good. This is not beer.
0: Inside a folder on Keith Joyner's dining room table are photos of some of the men. Some are originals, others are copies. They were all sent to him by the family members once he found them. And that all started with an obituary.
6: Of the wife of Lloyd Glenn Sawyers. Uh, her name was Gus. She, I think she died in 2004. And in that obituary, it gave her children. So I, I got uh, the name Sharon... Wilcoxen, in Cisco, Texas. I found her, and I called, left a stupid rambling message. I, I was so excited to get to get someone. I thought this woman's was never going to call me back.
0: Keith is a bus driver for Hot Springs School District, and one of the teams had a game.
6: I was at a, a basketball game with a high school. We were in Arley, and uh,
0: I got a phone call.
4: Um, I was amazed. I would, you know, it was like. Where is this coming from?
0: Sharon Wilcoxon is 58 now, the principal of Cisco Elementary School. and We talked on the phone for a while.
4: You know, honestly, I was so young when it happened. Um, I was four and my sister was two. And it, it was, it's something that in my family, I don't know why, but it was just really not ever talked about.
0: It was a really hard time for her family probably the hardest it would ever be.
4: And my mom was extremely young. You know, she was very young, um, had these two babies. And when my grandfather, my mother's father, they lived in Dallas, and he was on his way to Cisco to my dad's funeral, and he had a heart attack and died between Dallas and Fort Worth. So it was just a really, I mean, my mom buried her husband, and then two days later, we buried my grandfather,
0: so this is what happened then. They got through it.
4: Right. That's pretty much the way it was. Um, so when Keith called me, it just brought all this up into the forefront. So it's, it's got me really questioning myself, you know, because now I'm... Uh,
6: the next thing that happened was she told me that she is, she is Facebook friends with one of the widows, a lady by the name of Ella Winman. She was David Sutton's uh, widow. And I found uh, David and Ella's son and daughter, um, Greg Sutton and Mindy Sutton. Greg was two, and Mindy was like two months or something when when they died. Um,
0: It took a while, but Keith found them all. The wives of the airmen, the sisters, the brothers, the kids who were so little when they lost their fathers. Some of them have called Brian, too. They're all impressed that these two guys from Montana would dig in the way they have.
4: It's such an honor to have people that have absolutely no knowledge of any of us go into this much trouble. And the commitment involved in doing this is just amazing.
6: Um, it, to me, it, it brought tears to my eyes because because we're doing this and it's still so fresh in their minds. Um, I thought, you know... It, this has got to be a good thing we're doing, so it just brought tears to my eyes.
3: I said, Mike, it's doing now. And now, right now, it's all coming together.
0: This month, they'll pack up and get on airplanes to come to Montana. The dedication ceremony will happen on July 23rd, the 54th anniversary of the crash.
3: They've got a plaque.
0: Brian's daughter-in-law helped design it. It's got a picture of Emigrant Peak with the crash site pointed out.
3: She and Brian worked with a curator at Dias Air Force Base to get everything right. The patches the men wore on their flight suits, the plane, the right number on its tail.
0: There's a little write-up on there about what happened, and a plea not to forget.
3: With some more help, Brian built a gazebo.
0: And the stand for the plaque was designed and built by Brian's brother-in-law. Other family members and friends, other people he talked to about materials, they all stepped up.
3: Now, everything's ready. Brian says a conservative guess is that 25 of the airman's family members will be coming in from all over the country for the ceremony. It's going to be a big deal. Yeah.
0: What are you going to do with all these people up here?
3: Go hiking. Yeah. The day after the ceremony, he's arranging a way to drive some of the older family members to a ridge across from the crash site. He also plans to take anyone who thinks they can make it up the mountain to see the wreckage. It's a place where their lives, all of them, drastically changed.
1: And you know, something that has amazed me about this thing is the families. I mean, it is, it is still a huge weight on them. Well, I mean, 54 years later, it's still, it, it reminds you of the sacrifice families make. It's huge, it is so huge more than a guy ever really realizes.
3: Two of the men have grave sites in Arlington National Cemetery. The others have graves where they lived most of their lives, but the caskets are empty because they're on Emigrant Peak.
1: Such a tragedy, but such a beautiful place too, you know?
3: Bozeman Chronicle and Last Best Stories. I'm Michael Wright.
0: And I'm Jewel Banville.
5: man? Awesome.
0: Our thanks to Michael Wright and to his editor at the BozCron, Nick Eli, who took a chance on expanding this feature to include an audio version. And truly, this was an unforgettable reporting adventure. Because even though the story was long, and really, thanks for listening to it, There are some things we didn't tell you. Chiefly, we thought we might actually never make it off Emigrant Peak to finish it. I mean, getting up to the plane wreck was tough. Or, as Brian put it,
1: It's not for Aunt Mildred's hiking club, is it?
7: (laughs) Probably not.
0: (laughs) But that was nothing compared to what happened on the way down. As Michael said in the story, there were five of us, plus Hobbs the dog. Brian, Michael, myself, Michael's girlfriend, Rachel Babbitt, and the photographer for the Bozeman Chronicle at the time, Adrian Sanchez
7: Gonzalez. he's like, we can take, Brian was, was like, we can take the, the same route down, or we can st- go this new route, which I've never gone down before. And I don't know, since we had already taken this adventure up, we were like feeling a bit adventurous. We're like, let's take the, the side we've never taken before. Granted, we had no idea if it was a cliff or
0: The route ended up going straight down the mountain. And I am not exaggerating. It was like an 80-degree slope through a burn area.
7: Um, coming down was like the steepest hill I have ever gone down.
0: We were on loose rock, and when we figured out it was a bad call, we actually couldn't go back up. The ground wasn't solid
7: enough. And, uh, and someone in our crew mentioned, you know, we went dirt surfing. I take that seriously. Like, we literally went dirt surfing. We... We were like just sliding and holding on to rocks and holding on to trees and branches and hoping we didn't roll down the mountain. It was uh, it was pretty steep. And when you have $15,000, $20,000 worth of equipment over your shoulders, you you want to be as careful as possible. Then. Um, so it was probably the hardest thing to go down, and I never imagined going down would be so hard.
0: <laughs> but we did it. It took us all about a week to recover. Even Brian, who's like a spry, bearded mountain goat, felt it.
1: I feel like a mountain goat that, that just got drugged to the butcher shop. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. I am beat.
0: Also, he let me know when we were chatting later that when he takes the airman's families up Emigrant Peak, he's uh, going to find a different way down. Sounds like a smart move to me. You've been listening to Last Best Stories. I'm Jewel Banville. See you next time.